You're listening to The Globalist, first broadcast on the 21st of February 2024 on Monocle Radio. The Globalist, in association with UBS. This is The Globalist, broadcasting to you live from Midori House in London. I'm Georgina Godwin. On the programme ahead, the G20 foreign ministers gather in Brazil, with Gaza and Ukraine likely to dominate the agenda. We'll head to West Africa, where the juntas of Mali, Burkina Faso and Niger have declared a new tri-state coalition. Then... The issue of double standards, if we are honest, is a permanent presence in the international scene. And we certainly, in Western countries, don't have any kind of monopoly on that. We sit down with Portugal's foreign minister to talk Russia and Ukraine, Israel and Gaza, and double standards in diplomacy. We'll discuss the joint drills between the US and the Philippines in the South China Sea, and we'll have a rustle through the papers with Nina de Santos. Matt Wolfe will give us a roundup of theatre happenings and... Good news if you're planning to visit the pastel-painted villages and cliffs terraced with lemon groves of Italy's Amalfi Coast. The region will be opening a new international airport in time for the European summer. That's all ahead here on The Globalist, live from London. First, a look at what else is happening in the news. The US will announce a major package of sanctions against Russia on Friday over the death of opposition leader Alexei Navalny and the two-year Ukraine war. In Pakistan, the two major political parties have reached a formal agreement to form a coalition government, ending 10 days of intense negotiations after an inconclusive national election did not return a clear majority. And Sweden's defence ministry says it will donate military aid to Ukraine worth some 682 million US dollars, including the transfer of equipment and fresh cash for arms procurement. Do stay tuned to Monocle Radio throughout the day for more on those stories. Now, the G20 foreign ministers' meeting is today and tomorrow in Rio de Janeiro. The main topics on the agenda will be international conflicts, such as the wars in Ukraine and Gaza, and the reform of global governance, which is one of the three priorities of Brazil's G20 presidency. The meeting comes as a diplomatic spat engulfs Brazilian President Luiz Ignacio Lula da Silva after his comparison of Israel's military campaign in Gaza to the Holocaust, and is further complicated by the attendance of both the US and the Russian foreign ministers. Well, I'm joined in the studio now by Antonio Sampao, who's an expert on Brazilian politics and security at the Global Initiative Against Transnational Organised Crime. Uh, Antonio, it's lovely to have you back in the studio. First time uh, post-pandemic, so uh, really good to have you back. Let's start with Blinken and Lavrov. How problematic will it be to have both the Washington and Kremlin representatives there? And will there be any direct meetings between them? How might their presence steer the dialogue on the war in Ukraine? So thank you. Good to be back. Um, unsurprisingly, there are no meetings scheduled between Lavrov and Blinken, uh, but the two will be at the table together. And the first day of meetings rather explosively will focus on addressing geopolitical tensions. And uh, this will be uh, 
particularly important because uh, Russia was not invited to the Munich Security Conference last weekend. So this will be the first time in which the two will be at an international forum. Um, uh, Russia is... uh, as usual, as as reflecting its broader diplomatic uh, position right now, is in a minority in the meeting. The, the majority of G20 me- members are democracies. Um, Brazil has always um, adopted um, um, a traditionally diplomatic, uh, uh, neutral position uh, in these matters, but. Russia will be in a, major, in a minority. So uh, it is expected that it will be um, sort of challenged, especially with the, the situation, the, the uh, death of uh, Alexei Navalny. Mm-hmm. The war in Gaza will also be addressed. After Lula's remarks comparing Israel's actions to the Nazi Holocaust, how is that discussion likely to pan out and will there be any Israeli representation? So this is um, a nightmare scenario for Brazilian diplomats because it uh, directly threatens uh, the the possibility that Brazil, as the president of the G20 this year, um, any ambition that it would um, form some sort of consensus or, or or resolution towards the end of its presidency at the end of the year to resolve or or to uh, break make a breakthrough in the diplomatic um, in, um, for a diplomatic solution to the war that is threatened now because of Lula's comments um, but it it is a position that also uh, puts Lula in conflict with the tradition of Brazilian diplomacy, which has always been a more uh, neutral and peace-prone sort of approach. So it's a very ideological position that um, goes against the technical tradition of the Itamarachi, as the Brazilian diplomacy is called. Um, so so uh, the, the, the war has put Brazil at a um, complicated situation on the table right now. Um, there will be, uh, as I understand, um, no Israeli representation, but um, the, the issue will be addressed at the first uh, at the first instance, and this diplomatic role also affects the second day of discussions, which will focus on the reform of global governance. Brazil wants a permanent seat at the UN Security Council, um, and was expecting to voice that very strongly in the second day. Um, many might argue. Why would Brazil deserve a permanent seat at the UN Security Council, given its um, uh, recent comments? And this is not just the first time that Lula causes controversy with with, with these comments. There was also uh, late, uh, last year, uh, uh, actually, when he was campaigning for president uh, the year before, he, um, uh, he he compared. Ukraine and Russia said that both were at fault for the war, which caused, you know, an understandable backlash both internally and externally. So there is a sense that Lula has not been on the side of um, first its Western partners, but also of democracy, uh, of defense of democracy as um, as, as an international principle, um, which is not what the foreign ministry, Brazilian foreign ministry would argue, but it's the perception that came out of some of these comments. Mm. And so I wonder then how Brazil's presidency will shape the G20. So Brazil um, wants to uh, wants to focus more on the core com- competencies of the G20, which have always been more on the economic side, on the macroeconomic and socioeconomic reforms. Um, and it will uh, focus, I think, particularly strongly on the environmental front, which has very understandably and very, uh, very correctly, I think, been um, a major cause of the Lula presidency, both internally and externally, particularly um, after the four years of the right-wing Jair Bolsonaro administration that caused uh, so much destruction in the Amazon. Um, 
So these these positions will be strong. They are expected to form uh, some sort of global commission to tackle um, climate change, especially in terms of uh, renewable energies. Uh, there is a biofuel initiative that uh, Brazilian uh, Sherpas uh, diplomats will will um, will introduce. I think it it, it ties to the um, to the internal agenda that Lula has of encouraging green economies in the Amazon, uh, carbon retention, and other sustainable economies to preserve bio biomes such as, such as the Amazon. So this is all, I think, a positive agenda that Brazil will be able to to hopefully get out of the negative uh, uh, narratives that have been uh, circulating with, with the recent comments and also with the ge- geopolitical tensions that are sure to dominate the headlines during the first few mm. days. And do you think that we're going to see a more concentration on south-to-south conversations under Brazil? That's certainly what Brazil will try to do. It's, uh, it's it's traditionally positioned itself as a champion of the global south, as a um, diplomatic power in the global south, and Lula is particularly um, um, attuned to that. Uh, and actually, the comments that he made on Gaza were made rather, <laughs> ra- rather unfortunately, in during a diplomatic trip in Africa. So um, that that uh, that is something that Lula will try to do. Um, I think that. Um, uh, the the absence of China in the G20 of of the foreign minister of China is particularly um, causes some eyebrows raises some eyebrows and I think Brazil will uh, struggle to to leave behind this over overarching tension between uh, Western powers and uh, Eastern powers let's say the, the more autocratic governments I think that type of clash tends to um, overshadow the um, the possibility of South-South cooperation being being a, a prominent uh, item in the, the G20 agenda. I think that's more strongly um, uh, done through the BRICS forum that has now been expanded with the inclusion of other governments, including autocratic ones. So um, there's this overarching tension between Brazil and the, the, the broader global south um, trying to create this narrative, this positive narrative of, you know, cooperation and, and um, poles of power that are more independent from the US and European mm. sort of powers. Mm. But it's always, it's increasingly coming to clash with this broader tension between, okay, you you you, you want to, to, to have South-South cooperation, great, but what about democratic defense in some of these um, Global South actors and some of these diplomatic actors in Africa, such as such as China? Why are you allying yourself to that? And mm. um, that sort of uh, questioning between um, democracies and autocracies. And this whole idea of BRICS wanting to basically shift the international world order. I mean, this meeting is in preparation for the heads of government session later in the year. There are so many elections coming up. Uh, The world is in such a volatile state. I wonder how relevant these preparations will still be come November. Yes, it is a very good question. Uh, A lot will depend on how um, the wars in Ukraine and the war in Gaza play out. Um, um, The G20, again, is not a particularly... Its core is not geopolitics and politics. That's that's more on the G7 side and in the UN, of course. Um, But... Uh, the item of both wars will be on the agenda of this meeting and 
it is expected that the final uh, resolution uh, towards the end of the year or the final um, meetings will address those issues. It was a very thorny issue in the September meeting in India when the... Um, Almost, the, the, we came close not having a final sort of com communique, but at the end, the the statement uh, avoided directly blaming Russia and said just that um, international actors should respect international law and refrain from from violence. So, so depending on how the wars go, um, it might water down a lot of the language uh, towards the end of the G20 meetings. And I think that the attempt to um, focus on the more positive agenda of technical cooperation, climate change, these will be there. And I think there are less politicized items that we'll get, um, that we'll get more agreement on. But this overarching tension, I think, will overshadow these issues a bit. And there'll be no final communique. Yes, that's what uh, has been discussed, although that, that may change. The G20 is a very flexible forum, so diplomats can um, take these positions. It's not a particularly long forum. It's been going on since 2008. So uh, there is... Uh, it is within the, the president of G20, uh, in this case, Brazil, to choose that. And I think that was a wise choice um, um, at the moment, at least, uh, to avoid this sort of scramble for, for, for an agreement that might go overnight as these things go. Yeah, and certainly no happy snaps with both Lavrov and Blinken in them. Yes. Antonio, thank you very much indeed. That's Antonio Sampal there. And this is The Globalist. UBS has over 900 investment analysts from over 100 different countries. Over 900 of the sharpest minds and freshest thinkers in the world of finance today. To find out how we could help you, contact us at UBS.com. Coups in Mali, Burkina Faso and Niger, the country's interim leaders have been locked in discussions with ECOWAS, the economic community of West African states. However, negotiations failed and at the end of January, the three nations withdrew from the bloc. Now, they're all members of the Alliance of Sahel States, or AES, formed in September last year after the putsch in Niger. But now, as well as announcing they'd like to expand the objectives of the AES, they've also said they'll be forming a trilateral Confederation. Well, I'm joined now by Tara O'Connor, founder and executive director of Africa Risk Consulting, a pan-African consulting company. She joins us on the line from lovely Lamu in Kenya. Uh, good morning to you, Tara. Good morning. Good morning. Uh, the formation of this new body has quite a complicated history. How did we get to this point? Well, I think it all began, well, it all began with the coups, really, that you talked about earlier, and then immediately after which um, the ECOWAS, um, uh, of which they are all members, first suspended them, then imposed sanctions on Niger in particular, and also threatened military, military intervention to overturn the coup, particularly in Niger. And obviously that put um, these three countries, which are incredibly volatile in any case, the leaders on a back foot looking over their shoulders to see whether the ECOWAS would actually make good its threat. Um, and as part of that defence, um, first of all, they did a couple of things, moved out of 
the G5 Sahel anti-jihadist uh, military organization uh, that was uh, that was uh, combined forces to uh, to counter insurgency activity in the Sahelian region um, and formed the Alliance of um, of Sahelian States or AES, as you say. And, and what is AES exactly and how do they plan to expand it? Well, effectively, it's it's first and foremost a defence pact, but it goes beyond that. And ironically, having looked at it a bit closer, it actually mirrors effectively the old French um, uh, French regional agreement uh, treaties and agreement that were defence, um, foreign policy, currency, and uh, tra- inter inter interregional trade. Mm. Uh, so it's kind of it's a little bit of um, uh, the same again, but in a smaller in a smaller federation and totally controlled by these three countries: Burkina Faso, Mali, and Niger. Mm. And ECOWAS, what's been the reaction from that body about the withdrawal of these countries? So ECOWAS has actually ECOWAS has obviously. Um, felt it as a bit of a body blow, um, and it's um, a, as a body blow to its existence. Let's not forget that ECOWAS is in fact a, um, a, a ECOWAS is in fact a, a post-colonial body that is meant to enhance democratic representation and so on, and good governance in the region, as well as promoting uh, economic. Uh, uh, economic activity between each country and has a defense pact backing it. So uh, so to some extent, there is a great deal of disquiet about it because it represents uh, instability in the region. Mm. And, you know, there is a lot of suspicion that this is, uh, you know, really that the this new group is really just an, using anti-colonial rhetoric and liberation movement kind of propaganda to cover up effectively what is fortune hunting hunting for the group. Mm. But I think it's more than that. Well, tell, tell us, I mean, expand, expand that. What, what, what more is there? And what does it also mean for the former colonisers of the countries, the, the French, for instance, and the EU? Well, the AES is effectively, is very much backed by, uh, by Russia. Um, Russia has, has a hand in this. It, it's the announcement of the AES uh, was uh, followed by military advisors, uh, additional military advisors arriving in Burkina Faso to to support uh, to support the Burkinabe re- regime, but they are also talking about um, stepping out of the 14 country CFA Franc zone, which is, if it ta- transpires into into reality, would will be extremely destabilizing. We've already seen how economically destabilizing the coups have been. In particular, in the last couple of days, we've seen that uh, Niger has actually defaulted on its debt. And in the last few days as well, because um, this, uh, you, you know, because the United uh, three countries' defense forces are not winning against the jihadist insurgencies. We've seen an attack on a foreign gold mine in Mali, which left a number of people dead. So, um, you know, it, it will, you know, a lot depends on how successful they are able to be as a joint enterprise against the jihadist uh, movement in the region. And do these countries, these three countries, pose a threat to the wider region? In 
in the sense that they are stepping out of uh, of pre-existing um, uh, pre-existing arrangements and could you know a new currency I think they're talking about a, a currency called the Sahel if that uh, replaces the CFA franc it will mean that um, you have yet another currency zone and greater instability in, uh, you know, you'll, you you risk having a very devalued currency because these countries have got very little to, very little in terms of economic, um, they're all very aid-dependent countries, they've got very little on which to base that currency. So in a Zimbabwe-type situation with uh, launching a new currency with no basis for it is very destabilizing. But the very fact that this is a defense pact between these three countries to um, to join forces uh, to uh, to form a united defence pact, which es essentially puts them against the ECOWAS countries, um, is in itself very destabilising. The coups are very destabilising. We've seen how uh, how there is a great deal of instability in Senegal. It has sent shockwaves through the region, and those shockwaves are destabilising. Mm. And and finally, Tara, I mean, was this situation in the Sahel dealt with much at the African Union meeting last week? Yes, it was, and I think it was just that the you know the AU has uh, issued a statement um, where they are actually calling for greater uh, greater discussion and their disappointment at the uh, at these three countries' decision. You know, the AU backs again. AU and ECOWAS has a commitment to greater democracy and greater representation in the region for people, and this AES effectively now protects. Uh, the coup leaders as much as it does their installation in power and it ob it takes them out of any need to uh to meet a uh, ECOWAS or AU um uh um uh, agreements that they have to be moving towards democrat res restoration of elected government and democracy. Tara, thank you very much. Enjoy lovely Lamu. Still to come in the programme, we speak with Portugal's foreign minister about diplomacy. I do try to point out to friends from African countries in particular, you know, wait a moment, when you say the West, it's not quite like that, actually. You know, there is a very significant number of countries who have voted exactly the same way as you voted in the United Nations and so on. This is The Globalist. Let's continue now with today's newspapers. And joining me in the studio is Nina Dos Santos, who's an international broadcast correspondent and the former CNN Europe editor. Good morning to you, Nina. Good morning, Georgina. Uh, now, we are looking first at The Guardian, which says barely 10% of Europeans believe Ukraine can still defeat Russia. Tell us more. Well, this is an interesting uh, exclusive look at a report that has been compiled by an influential Brussels-based think tank called um, the European Council of uh, Foreign Relations. And what they've done is, is They've surveyed people across 12 EU states and they found that more or less, as you were saying before, one in 10 EU citizens polled here thought um, that actually Ukraine didn't have a chance, sadly, of prevailing in its attempt to try and recapture lost land and repel Russia. Twice as many of these EU citizens, even in countries that broadly support uh, Ukraine's efforts to try and defend itself, said that they thought that Russia was likely to continue to have the upper hand and eventually win and keep territory. Now, what this report shows is 
more broadly that there still remains two years on from the onset of war in Ukraine, which, by the way, uh, started on the 24th of February 2022. So there's going to be the anniversary of that uh, event just later on this week. Um, most people do still recognise that this is a huge existential battle for Europe, but on the other hand, exhaustion is setting in. And we've noticed that not just here in Europe. The real concern is that exhaustion from the United States as well won't back up Europe's uh, efforts to try and continue to um, you know, help Ukraine uh, repel Russia and continue to arm itself. So this raises some real questions for Zelensky's government in the future after, of course, that battle for Avdivka that we saw over the weekend. That was obviously eventually the Ukrainians had to cede that territory to Russia, the biggest uh, advance for Russia since the Battle of Bakhmut um, last year. And the question here for Vladimir Zelensky and his government, by the way, I've just come back from the Munich Security Conference as well, and you could see this here, is how to keep the West's appetite for supporting Ukraine and its attention on Ukraine uh, focused over the next year as this continues to be a battle of attrition, as mm. we can see. Uh, interestingly, there was another question asked, which was how people felt about a Trump presidency. Yes, that's right. Well, obviously, we know that there's huge amounts of nervousness in Berlin and Brussels about a Trump presidency. And I think the Europeans are quite nervous about it. Now, obviously, in countries like, for instance, Hungary, where you've got Viktor Orban, who's, you know, styled himself as a so-called European strongman and a quote unquote, and a bit of a, you know, a bête noire of the EU system, um, there might be some more appetite for the Trumpian underdog, if you like. But on the other hand, uh, there's real concerns that the United States' crucial role in NATO is, if you like, the, the most important component of NATO, helping to help Europe protect itself from an increasingly belligerent neighbour like Russia, that that appetite is starting to wane and Europeans getting really nervous about it. It's going to be a big problem for Ursula von der Leyen here, who's just this week unveiled her candidacy for a second term at the helm of the European Commission because she's having to pivot from all sorts of things that appear to be personally important to her and to Europeans, like the green energy agenda uh, five years ago. Now she's going to have to really refocus efforts on finding money for defence and also keeping Ukraine engaged in the topic of joining NATO and joining the EU, even if it's a very long and tortuous road towards that. And by the way, a road that in a few years' time might not include Vladimir Zelensky. And somebody else who's having to pivot slightly is Sakir Starmer, the head of the Labour Party here in Britain. He's attempting to avert a damaging rebellion from Labour MPs by backing an immediate humanitarian ceasefire. This is a very important vote that's going to take place in the British Parliament. Uh, it's been slightly derailed uh, by the fact that Prince William has weighed in. Yes, that's right. And this is all over the front pages of the newspapers. I was just looking at the you know picture on the Daily Telegraph of Prince William. Um, and then also the Times has it as, as its front page. Um, nothing like a royal prince or princess to wade in on a very emotive subject to capture people's attention. And it's the second time that he's done this. The last time that he uh, expressed concerns about events in the Middle East was back in uh, October the 11th, I think. So that was a couple of days after the October the 7th attack when, you know, he... Um, made this balanced statement, but also recognising Israel's right to defend itself against terrorists. Um, but now he's uh, apparently had meetings with humanitarian organisations and had some video conference calls um, 
with organisations on the ground in Gaza and been very moved, just as his father, the king, has been, about the plight of suffering uh, inside Gaza. And he said that, on the one hand, um, humanitarian aid needs to come into Gaza and that the hostages, about 134 of them, still reckon to be inside Gaza, Israeli citizens, need to be released with the utmost urgency. But he's also called for a lasting peace here. Sometimes it is only when faced with the sheer scale of humanitarian suffering that the importance of a permanent peace is brought home. So this is him wading into the sort of future of peace eventually further down the line at a time when diplomatically many people say that the two-state solution could be well and truly dead in the water. Mm. And I mean, what's unusual about this is that the royals don't usually make any kind of political comment. Particularly not on the most sensitive of foreign affairs, which this obviously is. But what it does is the royals... On the one hand, it echoes a a changing stance from the British government, if you like. David Cameron um, muted at one point recently in... in, um, in a talk he gave uh, saying that the UK could potentially in the future recognise a, a Palestinian state. Um, we're also seeing uh, clamouring calls from Washington and London for to urge restraint, um, uh, for Israel to urge restraint in its offensive in Gaza. And as you were saying before, the Labour Party, which by all accounts in the polls is looking like it's going to win the next election, is also facing its own problems with its own MPs who are saying they're abhorred by the level of suffering, particularly um, women and children um, losing their lives in Gaza and the lack of humanitarian aid that is is being and medical aid that's being able to be allowed through. That's allowed the Scottish National Party an entree, if you like, to then try and cleave a split inside the Labour Party. And this is what this vote this evening is all about. The Labour Party now pivoting its stance towards calling for humanitarian-led um, ceasefire but the language and it's uh, the bill that it's putting forward is quite different from a slightly more sort of um, charged language that the S&P is putting forward. Let's turn now to look at the test firing of a Trident missile from a Royal Navy submarine, which has failed for the second time in a row. Yeah, now this is a really interesting one because obviously the UK and France on the European sort of land mass and continent and us up further in the North Sea um, are the only two big sort of nuclear powers in this part of the world. And actually, when I was in Munich just last week, you could hear uh, Germany talking about trying to get countries like France and the UK to share their nuclear deterrent, to shield the rest of Europe uh, with their nuclear power abilities um, from as I was saying before, any future skirmishes with belligerent nuclearized neighbor like Russia around the corner, which, by the way, also has a nuclear uh, enclave, exclave in Kaliningrad in the Baltic Sea. Now, uh, Trident, the nuclear submarine fleet, because our, our missiles are on uh, submarines, um, apparently has had another misfire. This is the second one since 2016. And uh, it seems as though Trident's only fired 12 of its two class two missiles in 30 years and two of them the most recent of firings tests have misfired grant shups the uh, defense secretary apparently was on board hms vanguard the submarine uh, when it tried to fire this rocket and it just basically flopped into the sea and this again reignites this concern and debate about whether or not the uk is militarily ready for uh, you know the drumbeat of a potential broader conflagration, indeed World War III in the future. Um, MPs 
in the House of Commons are going to be briefed about this apparently later on today. And they have already backed a £40 billion plan to try and... um, upgrade the Trident fleet and some of these submarines are going to be uh, replaced in the next decade or so. But, you know, it's not just the military hardware that we're talking about here in terms of sort of defence secretaries saying, you know, we need to really think about, you know, right across Europe, people are talking about readying the civilian population as well to get more involved should ever they need mm. to be called upon. Very quick look at this shock headline that if you eat more healthily, you'll actually live longer. <laughs> Funny that. And you'll actually sleep better. Now, this is what this report is all about. So apparently uh, studies have been done and they show that if you have a more or less plant-based diet, by the way, that also includes coffee, Georgina. You'll be happy to know at this early Excellent. time of the day. Um, you can um, cut your uh, your risk of sleep apnea by up to about a fifth. Um, this report has studied men and women who suffer from sleep apnea and they found that those who uh, sort of avoided meat and dairy products and ate mainly grains, pulses, vegetables and so on and so forth. Not entirely vegan, by the way, you'll be relieved to know. Um, But if you have a more or less plant-based diet, uh, you can cut the chance of sleep apnea by a 19% of respondents reported that they had uh, fewer incidences of interrupted sleep, which is great because sleep apnea has been linked to things like cardiovascular disease, obviously the high risk of stroke and heart attacks. Um, And you can also cut your risk of snoring. And apparently it's more effective on men rather than women, this plant-based diet. So, you know, there you go. Get your greens in and get your sleep in. Absolutely. Nina DeSantis, thank you very much indeed. Now, here's what else we're keeping an eye on today. The US will announce a major package of sanctions against Russia on Friday over the death of opposition leader Alexei Navalny and the two-year Ukraine war, President Joe Biden has said. The latest sanctions on Russia will target a range of items, including the country's defence and industrial bases, along with sources of revenue for the economy. In Pakistan, the two major political parties have reached a formal agreement to form a coalition government, ending 10 days of intense negotiations after an inconclusive national election did not return a clear majority. The deal is between Bhutto Zadari's Pakistan People's Party, the PPP, and the Pakistan Muslim League Nawaz, that's the PMLN, of the three-time Premier Nawaz Sharif. And Sweden's defence ministry says it will donate military aid to Ukraine worth some 7.1 billion Swedish crowns, that's 682 million US dollars, including the transfer of equipment and fresh cash for arms procurement. It will be Sweden's 15th round of aid for Ukraine and the country's biggest such package to date. This is The Globalist. Stay tuned. This Saturday will mark the second anniversary of Russia's full-scale invasion of Ukraine, which has had a profound impact on the European Union and security in the region. Two weeks ago, Portugal's Minister of Foreign Affairs, João Gomes Cravino, visited Kiev to discuss the war and reconstruction efforts. He sat down with Monocle's Andrew Muller over the weekend at the Munich Security Conference to reflect on Europe's future relationships with Russia and double standards in diplomacy, amongst other things. Andrew began by asking how the EU can have a relationship with Moscow. The relationship, unfortunately, will always need to exist. Russia is not going to go away. It lives next to us. 
and sooner or later we will have to have a new modus vivendi. But this is the modus vivendi that has to be established on terms that do not undermine European security. And what that means is that Russia must be defeated in Ukraine. So I think that there is always a role for diplomats at the moment. That role is dormant. It's not something that we can use at all. And I'm not sure that it would be useful to close down the embassy if that would help us in some way to make our point about how much we disagree with the nature of what he is doing to his own people. I think, though, that we have, over the last two years, established a series of sanctions packages. We're now in the European Union going to be discussing the 13th sanctions package. And so it is difficult to find something new to throw on, which is not already being thought of in the context of punishment for Putin's behavior in Ukraine. In terms of a part that Portugal can play, though, I'm thinking back to last year's Munich Security Conference, and there was a lot of conversation about how baffled, frankly, I think a lot of Western countries were that what is thought of as the global south, which is not necessarily a helpful term, but it's what we've got, were not as fussed about Ukraine as the West thought should be self-evident. I was wondering if you thought maybe a country like Portugal, given the relationships you have with nations in South America and Africa in particular, through the, the CPLC could actually be more of a conduit, more of, I guess, a mediator between the West and the global South. Well, actually, I spend a large part of my time discussing with colleagues from what I call the plural South. It's <laughs> very, uh, it, it is very heterogeneous. Yesterday and day before, I had, uh, I think, what, 11 or 12 meetings with African colleagues in Addis Ababa. Mm. I just flew overnight from Addis. And, of course, Ukraine comes up regularly. And you have a variety of different approaches. They're, they're very varied. And some have a sense of the global impacts, of global consequences of disregarding the Charter of the United Nations, particularly coming from a permanent member of the Security Council. Others are focused on immediate survival uh, issues of uh, food security, mm. questions that don't give them the political bandwidth to be engaging on matters of geopolitics. So I think that we need to be a lot more attentive we have a problem with the accusation of double standards that is uh, systematically thrown at us, particularly now with respect to the Middle East. Is there a useful argument against that, though? Because the double standards thing, well, as you're aware, does have some merit. What do you say when that is brought up? We think very much in terms of European Union, 27 member states, mm. and around that table... I would say that uh, probably 22, 23 cannot really be accused of double standards. But collectively, we take decisions on the basis of unanimity, and this uh, creates a major problem for us. So I do try to point out to friends from African countries in particular, you know, wait a moment, when you say the West, it's not quite like that, actually. You know, there is a very significant number of countries who have voted exactly the same way as you voted in the United Nations and so on. So I think that you're right that there is some merit. Having said that, the issue of double standards, if we are honest, is a permanent presence in the international scene. And we certainly in Western countries don't have any kind of monopoly on that. So what we perhaps less uh, inclined to bandy the term around. But I think that uh, what we do definitely have to do, establishing our position on Ukraine on the basis of principles, very clearly established principles that are the pillars of our international order 
we have to live up to our own standards. Was that part of the thinking behind not only not suspending aid to UNRWA in Gaza, but actually increasing it, I think, by a million euros? Were you attempting to demonstrate what you were just talking about? There, I think, um, there are two strands of thinking on this that are relevant in our decision-making process. One is the more immediate, that it does not make sense to collectively punish an institution for what 0.1% of its workforce may have done. And you're not only punishing the institution, we're punishing the population of Gaza. This makes no sense whatsoever in our thinking. We are concerned about uh, how this uh, could have been possible, if in fact it is, because we don't have clear knowledge of what happened. But we are perfectly satisfied with the mechanisms that are being set up, uh, the internal review mechanism and the external audit, which is led by Catherine Colonna. So that's on one side. And by saying at that particular moment, in a very visible and symbolic manner, we're throwing in some more money. And I think we've been successful in leading others to think things through in a more thorough way. And in fact, a number of countries that said they were suspending, they've told me privately, yes, we're suspending, but we didn't have any payments due until July anyway. So by then we'll see. So I think that that's on the one hand. On the other hand, there's another aspect to this, which is if you look at the history of UNRWA, why UNRWA was created, and what a number of the more radical elements of the Israeli government have been trying to do in the past year with respect to one, get the organization out so that the population of Gaza can also be expelled, which is completely contrary to all that we stand for in the European Union or the UK for that matter. And the instrumentalization of potentially uh, horrific involvement of a dozen members of the uh, 13,000 workforce of UNRWA. The instrumentalization of this is something that we shouldn't, be, we shouldn't be too naive about. We have to understand what is happening underneath. And that was Portugal's Minister of Foreign Affairs, Joao Gomes Cravino, speaking to Andrew Muller there. You're with Monocle Radio. It's 15.41 in Manila, 8.41 in Zurich. The navies of the Philippines and the US held joint maritime exercises in the South China Sea a week ago, a territory over most of which China claims sovereignty. It includes parts of the exclusive economic zones of the Philippines, Vietnam, Indonesia, Malaysia and Brunei. And on Monday, the Philippines and the US took to the skies in a joint air patrol of the area. Alessio Patellano is a professor at King's College London and an expert on Asian defence. Alessio, welcome back to the show. How has the Philippines' relationship with both China and the US changed since President Ferdinand Marcos Jr. took over the leadership? Um, Good morning, Georgina. This is a very important question to begin with because we can only understand how uh, the Philippines' behaviour has changed if we relate it to the very different approaches of the two presidents. Uh, President Duterte, um, uh, who uh, had a very different approach to um, the uh, uh, the, the maritime claims and the the disputes with, with, with China, had prioritized uh, relationship with uh, China had prioritized uh, stable ties. Now, of course, he was riding on the back of the 2016 awards and um, in, in the South China Sea. And that, in that context, the permanent court of arbitration um, had enabled a legal advantage to the Philippines. So he decided that 
he would negotiate with China, he would engage with China. Marcus's approach to this is very different. He understands that the strategic context is changing. He understands that Chinese behavior has not improved, and in this respect has been tilting back towards the United States. So what we're looking at, it's a sort of change, a shift in the way you prioritize um, the balance between the United States and China. You, he's basically, setting forth a stronger strategic and security relationship with the United States as opposed to the engagement with China that was preferred by President Duterte. Mm. Tell us more about these uh, joint operations. Now, this is a part of, uh, if you want, of that strategic tilting towards the United States. Um, One of the things that makes the relationship more credible is by focusing on improving interoperability. And of course, uh, the maritime space around the Philippines um, requires um, three things. Enhancing interoperability in the skies, which is what we've seen um, this week. It, It involves enhancing interoperability and cooperation at see on the surface, as we've seen previously. But also, if you think some months back, there's also an element of antibiosity connected to it, how you prepare in case there is any attempt um, at um, uh, storming bitches, islands, um, um, particularly offshore islands that are under under your control or within your EZ. So in that sense, what we are looking at is the Philippines and the United States that are taking different steps to indicate that they recognize the nature of the strategic environment and they are working together to enhance their ability to tackle challenges to it. Mm. And how has China reacted? Uh, so uh, that's a very interesting, um, if you want, um, uh, it's, it's a very important question because uh, China, of course, is very uh, discontent. Uh, the vocabulary is a common vocabulary that we know about. You know, the United States is stoking the flames of instability in the region. Uh, that's a standard line that comes out of Beijing. Um, and at the same time, their own behavior, the monitoring, the, the monitoring, the shadowing, the sort of like the, 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 the candor activities, in particular, what we've seen in the last couple of weeks is the Southern Command, which is the command that that faces the Philippines, um, has been taking extra steps uh, to keep um, assets in high alert to monitor this patrol. But at the end of the day, um, the challenge for China is also that in the case of, of the Philippines, they're reaching back to an ally. Um, China at this moment, in this particular context, insofar as the South China Sea is concerned, remains a relatively isolated actor, mm-hmm. an actor with a few options. And in that sense, what we've seen, it's a classic reaction, but one that cannot really help them moving forward their own counterclaims, their own strategic position. In fact, if nothing else, this kind of behavior is the reason why Marcus in the first place has considered tilting back strategically towards the United States. Alessia, thank you very much indeed. That was Alessio Patalano, professor at King's College London and an expert on Asian defense. This is The Globalist on Monocle Radio. Now it's time to look 
at the stage with Matt Wolf, who's a theatre critic at the International New York Times. Matt, welcome back to the to the studio. There seems to be such a lot of uh, so many theatrical openings. I don't know right how now. anyone is coping with it. All the critics are all looking perpetually bleary-eyed, but here I am, wide awake. <laughs> Let's start off with John Logan's new yes. play. That's double feature. Yes. Now this is very interesting. He's a Tony Award-winning writer and three-time Oscar nominee. It's his first play in about seven or eight years, uh, and it's. It's an interesting conceit that doesn't quite work. It's called Double Feature, as you say, and it's based on two parallel relationships, one between Alfred Hitchcock and the actress Tippi Hedren, uh, and, um, of course, she was one of the Hitchcock blondes, and then, much uh, less well-known, uh, the filmmaker Michael Reeves, uh, who was in his early 20s before he uh, died very prematurely, and the actor Vincent Price as they were on the set of Witchfinder General. So you have these two relationships of director and actor sharing a set. And what the play wants to do is discuss kind of control, uh, power dynamics, a bit of Me Too and the Hitchcock-Hedron one. But it feels like a contrivance that hasn't quite worked itself into a full-fledged play. Isn't Tippi Hedron Melanie Griffith's mother? Exactly. And Dakota Johnson's grandmother. <laughs> and I have to say, Joanna Vanderham, who plays the part, is the highlight of a production, which on opening night anyway, which was just two nights ago, felt like it hadn't bedded in. I was a little worried, particularly about Ian McNeese's Hitchcock. He, he just isn't inside the part yet. Maybe in a couple of weeks it will land more fully. Mm-hmm. Let's look now at an updated Ibsen play. This is An Enemy of the People. Yes, this is a strange one because you sort of go to the theatre expecting um, all sorts of synapses to fire as, as different ideas or whatever are sort of presented to you. But with this one, everything seems like an open and shut case before you even go in the front door. Uh, it's uh, an updated version, as you say, of Ibsen's play about a medical officer uh, of, of a small town who's in charge of the thermal baths, uh, played in this production by Matt Smith, who discovers that they're contaminated. And this doesn't go down well with the community that includes his politician brother, played by Paul Hilton, and all hell breaks loose. Uh, I suppose the surprise of this production is that it turned the town hall meeting in the second act uses the audience as the citizenry of the town. But everything that comes out of the town hall meeting, you could have guessed beforehand. Mm. You know, it, it's so entirely on the side of the angels that you just feel like you're watching a kind of editorial uh, opinion piece the entire time. <laughs> Let's talk now about one of my favourite authors. She's Dodie Smith. Uh, and of course, she wrote 101 Dalmatians. She did. And I confess, Georgina, to not having realised the extent to which she was also a wonderful playwright. Absolutely. I knew 101 Dalmatians and I captured the castle. But I had never heard of of um, Dear Octopus until this came along. And uh, it's a beautiful production directed by Emily Burns uh, at the National Theatre. And it's just the kind of thing the National Theatre does so well. It's a long, leisurely play with lots and lots of characters. It takes a while to get to figure out who's whom. It sort of feels a little bit like a Jane Austen novel where it's like somebody is somebody's cousin twice removed or whatever. (laughs) But um, there's time, space, and attention to detail to let it all come to life. Lindsay Duncan, one of my absolute favorite actresses, uh, is in peak form as kind of the mater familias of this kind of sprawling extended family. And she and her husband are celebrating their golden wedding anniversary, which means that everyone has to gather for a celebration. So it's one of these plays where not a whole lot actually happens. But by the end of the play, you feel as if you've got under everyone's skin exactly what you don't get from Double Feature or Enemy of the People. Mm. And is it set in, in 1938? When yes. And what's interesting is uh, John Gielgud, who, of course, is a character now played brilliantly by Mark Gaten, 
Octopus on the West End and the motive in the queue. He was in the original cast of Dear Octopus in 1938, and his part is brilliantly taken by the young actor Billy Howell. So there are all sorts of kind of intertextual references here. Uh, and finally, there's a new uh, collaboration between Jez Butterworth and Sam Mendes. Yes, this is very interesting because you think of Jez Butterworth move, uh, with plays like Mojo in Jerusalem, kind of macho. And this is Ladies' Night. This is Ladies' Night <laughs> at the theatre. And it stars his real-life partner, Laura Donnelly, wonderful, wonderful Irish actress, and she's terrific in it, as a sort of... Um, belligerent stage mother uh, in Blackpool who at the very beginning of the play is off stage dying and then there are flashback sequences where we see her in her prime pushing her daughters onto the stage and let's just say that it doesn't go as planned. There's a lot of Me Too in this play as well. Uh, it's a bit baggy and it has a third act that doesn't quite land but the second act when you see Laura Donnelly and the daughters kind of in pole position is about as good as theatre gets. And that's called The Hills of California. The Hills of California. It's- Matt Wolf, I wish you luck on your theatrical odyssey Thank you. I'm sure this is a show at 11 o'clock this morning. I'll be off to it. (laughs) That's Matt Wolf there. And this is The Globalist on Monocle Radio. UBS is a global financial services firm with over 150 years of heritage. Built on the unique dedication of our people, we bring fresh thinking and perspective to our work. We know that it takes a marriage of intelligence and heart to create lasting value for our clients. It's about having the right ideas, of course, but also about having one of the most accomplished systems and an unrivaled network of global experts. That's why at UBS, we pride ourselves on thinking smarter to make a real difference. Tune in to The Bulletin with UBS every week for the latest insights and opinions from UBS all around the world. The UNESCO-designated region of the Amalfi Coast in Italy attracts about 5 million visitors a year. And from this summer, the journey there will become much easier. International travellers will no longer have to fly to Naples and face a long road or rail journey, but will be able to land at a newly opened airport under an hour away. Well, Sally Geffen is an aviation analyst. She joins me now in the studio. Good morning to you, Sally. Many thanks for coming in. Um, This airfield was originally open back in 1926, so what? its history? Well, like most of the uh, airport facilities in Europe and beyond, um, a lot of aerodromes did originate from the earliest days of flying and obviously were deployed during the um, wartime eras as well. But anyway, this um, this little gem of an airport, as I'd like to call it, is nestled, um, as you pointed out, in really in the heart of the Amalfi Coast region, which is... Um, uh, you know, hugely attractive to to travellers, and obviously Naples at the moment is the the major gateway to that area. But Naples is getting really congested, so this airport will serve a dual purpose. It will be a point to point destination for low cost carriers wanting to have um, fast, cheap, direct connectivity into that tourist region, but also it'll offer a spillover facility, if you like, for Naples capital 
at Aquino. And so although it's quite a, um, you know, it's about 40 minutes drive from Naples, it still offers an alternative for those who still want to use the main gateway airport. There are very exciting plans for this new airport as well. And uh, it opens in July. Uh, It already has a launch airline, uh, Volatea, the Spanish airline, a very exciting airline in itself. The owners of Volatea started Welling, which is also um, very uh, popular and successful. So it's good times ahead. Mm -hmm. How is it being modified and developed? What kind of airport? You called it a little gem. I wonder why. Yeah, it is a little gem. It's going to be pretty small. I mean, even at the the projecting into the far distant future, uh, the master plan calls for, uh, by 2043, Six million passengers. So obviously, it's going to it's going to start small, but it does it will have quite a large runway, and uh, when it opens, it will have a two thousand meter runway, which will be further extended over time. Now, to begin with, it's going to use a fairly um, uh, ordinary terminal, I should say, because. The plans call for something much more ambitious, led by a consortium, uh, a consortium led by Deans, um, with very eminent companies involved and and architects. So eventually, um, that that major new terminal, which will be a sort of work in progress um, as the airport builds up traffic, will open um, in twenty twenty six, and that looks quite futuri- futuristic, futuristic, but quite beautiful, and has a lot of sustainable um, energy and engineering to it as well, very much addressed to the future, uh, addressing climate change. So just looking at the impact on the region, presumably there'll be a surge in tourists and a boost to the economy. Is there the infrastructure to cope? So we're talking about a heavily... um, sort of uh, heavy footfall to the Amalfi region anyway. Um, it's it's hugely popular and uh, particularly to uh, UK tourists. But at the moment, it does tend to get congested in the very um, visible areas or towns of Positano, for example, Amalfi itself. And I think what this will do will open up all the interesting a little um, smaller um, villages and towns for people to visit. It will boost the economy. It will have to be managed sustainably in terms of the footfall that's going in in and out of those towns. And actually, as part of this airport project, surface um, access and local transport will be boosted. So there's uh, plans to extend um, the railway to connect with the airport, but also um, more rail, more bus services. And also, it it will be good for the local Italian economy as well. Mm. Will there be any negative impacts, perhaps on, I don't know, ancient monuments? or the environment? I think um, that uh, the uh, the Campania region where this airport is based are fully aware of some of the downsides of that and they haven't gone into this lightly. There, there could indeed, the short answer is yes, there could be, but I think if it is... Um, monitored carefully. Um, we hope it doesn't go down the route where you have to pay uh, a fee to enter, say, a popular town just for the day or, or what have you. But, you know, I'm sure they will have that in mind. And um, also they've had the pandemic years to kind of plan for this and build it out gradually. So it is a long-term plan going out from now till, like I said, you know, to 2043 in its um 
in its sort of ultimate um, iteration of that airport. Mm -hmm. And just very briefly, you've mentioned a couple of airlines. Who else will be making use of this? Well, at the moment, it's uh, just Volatea, this Spanish low-cost carrier, um, which will be starting. Um, So in July, it opens July the 11th, and it'll be starting flights between uh, Nantes and Salerno Airport. And... um, and also, it's got two routes, one within Italy and one to uh, Nantes. And then later on, by September, two further routes mm-hmm. um, connecting within Italy. Now, there are talks about um, attracting Ryanair. I think many airlines will want to see it is a brand new facility mm. if there's any teething problems to actually get yes. it up and running. Sally, thank you very much indeed. And that's all we've got time for on today's programme. Thanks to our producers, Sophie Monaghan, Coombs, Carlotta Rabella and Monica Lillis, our researcher Neoma Ekwe and our studio manager Steph Chungu. The briefing's live at midday in London and The Globalist returns at the same time tomorrow. I'm Georgina Godwin. Thanks for listening. Hold up. 